Before we get into the message, I am going to read to you guys something from a young man named Denzel Macklin. He says this, I don't remember a whole lot about life as a kid. Mostly the thing I remember was being scared. I felt about knee-high to every adult in my life, looking up wide-eyed at every big person, frantically hoping for someone to recognize me. From the orphanage to every foster home, I came into a new loneliness. I had always been afraid of being left alone, and I guess that's because my mom gave me and my sister up when I was three. I always felt kind of left behind, and my adoptive parents took me in when I was in third grade, and they're generous people, but I have never really been known by them or even known where I was. They gave me up in a way, too. I was baptized at age 13 and hoped desperately that things would change because I knew something had to, and I quit caring what happened to me or who I was becoming. I had been empty and lonely for a long time, and being alone had been a way of life. My best friends were movies music, and skateboarding, and two years ago, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was very lost. I had reached a point of loneliness that I cannot describe, and I tried to fill it by smoking pot and uh, very regrettably lost my virginity to a girl I barely knew, and I wish I could take that back, and I was sure that God had abandoned me like everyone else. Um, That is what I was used to, and I was deeply depressed, and suicide became a real thought for me. Day after day, while sitting with my TV, I began to think it was the only way out of my lonely existence. Deep in my heart, I longed to know someone cared enough about me to help me stop the nothingness that was swallowing me. It's a tragic story, this guy, Danzo Macklin, and it's one that shows us that a life that is caught in the middle of a constant struggle is a life that we don't want to be in. And the sad thing is, you see, God loves this young man, but he doesn't see it. God has a plan for this young man, but he doesn't know it. What does he have? He has emptiness. And so what does he fill his life with? He fills it with sin. And does it help him? No. His sin only leads him to pain and suffering and suicidal thoughts. The problem this young man is facing is that he allowed sin into his life. And oftentimes God is trying to make a huge move in your life. But he can't because you've allowed sin to enter into your life. And he calls us to drive it out And we don't. We need to remember these words, drive out sin or it will drive you. Drive out sin or it will drive you. If you guys have been following the story in Judges, here we are week two, Judges chapter one. God has put Israel in the promised land and it's full of the wicked Canaanites, the people who hated God and worshiped idols and God commands the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, drive them out. In the book of Joshua, he gave this command. You need to get them out of the land because this land is called to be set apart and holy. And last week we saw the tribes of Judah and Simeon rise up and begin to drive out the land. Uh, But This week, we see that they hit some bumps in the road. So read with me. We're going to have the words and sound on the screen. And we're just going to go through verses 16 all the way to verses 21. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south, Ne'erat. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, And they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. 
Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. So these guys have advanced technology. It's kind of like if you were foot soldiers and you were driving people out and you were having a really good, successful mission, and then all of a sudden the tanks come in. You're like, oh, snap, we can't handle these tanks. That's what's going on right there. Chariots of iron. So verse 20. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. To this day. So what we are dealing with here is the fact that whether you're an Old Testament Jew or an American student in 2017, the reality is God has called us to drive out sin from our lives. And if we don't, it'll end up driving us. It'll end up motivating us. It'll end up controlling our life. Have you guys ever watched a zombie movie? Anybody? Zombie shows, zombie movies? Okay. So in these movies, we always see the human characters fighting zombies, and the zombies are trying to bite off the faces of the humans. It's a constant struggle. Here's the question. Can the zombies ever peacefully coexist with the humans? No. <laughs> Can they live together? Like, if you're in one of these post-apocalyptic worlds and a zombie comes up and is like, hey, let's hang out, or maybe he just says, you know, brains because it's all they can say. If you're like, yeah, I'll let down my garden and hang out with you, zombie. You can come chill with me. I'm sure it'll be fine. Will it be fine? No, it will not be fine. We know what happens when humans hang out with zombies. One of two things happens. Either the human kills the zombie or the zombie turns the human into a zombie. And we, in the same way, can't coexist with sin. We can't hang out with sin. We can't allow sin to just dwell with us and be a part of our life. We can't co coexist because just like the zombie illustration, we will either kill it or we'll become corrupted by it. Um, John Owen says, you will be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I think that is right there at the point. We will either be killing sin or sin absolutely will be killing us. And the strategy of the devil is that he is after us. He is constantly chasing after us, constantly trying to destroy us. The Bible says he is like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. You need to know you have an enemy, and he hates you, and he would love to see nothing more than your life to be destroyed. He looks at you, and he's like, if you're a Christian and you're saved, if I can't drag you down to hell with me, I'm going to make your life here on earth a living hell. This is what Jesus says about sin. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, John 8, 3, 4. There's no middle ground. You're either, you're either a slave of sin or you're free from sin. And it's sad to see many people driven by their sin. I remember when I was in San Francisco on a missions trip. Um, I have never seen a more intense homeless situation than downtown San Diego in the Tenderloin District. It was intense and insane. I remember, you know, I've seen people around Vista, you know, smoke weed. Um, I've seen homeless guys, you know, get high or get drunk in 
San Francisco, I saw an old man shooting heroin into his arm just on the side of the road. And, like, there's, like, cops going by and no one's doing anything. It's so normal there. There were so many people who literally were, like, on death's door at their wits' end. Sin had destroyed them. They had become a slave to it. Sin consumes us and it drains us. Joshua Ryan Butler, an author that I enjoy, says this. He says, sin is a destructive parasite that only cares about its own existence. It wants to tear creation apart from the inside out. In the same way that a healthy body does not require cancer to exist, God's creation does not require evil to exist. But the inverse is also not true. Cancer does not require a living, breathing body to sustain its existence. Or no, cancer does require a living, breathing body to sustain its existence, and evil similarly requires God's good creation to sustain its own existence. What is he saying here? What does he mean? This is what he's saying. Sin is like a cancer, and it's like a parasite. Sin is looking for a host to feed off of, and once it works its way into you, it'll drain you of your joy, your love, your life, your purpose, and your calling. I believe every single one of you has a calling by God to do something in your life for him. Not just those of us who end up in full-time ministry. Every one of you is called, but Satan just wants to get that parasite in and rob you of that calling. And some of you today, you might be here, and sin may be draining you. You may be living with sin, maybe living in sin. Maybe it's a constant thing. Maybe it's a once in a while thing. Maybe there's a secret that you're hiding from your parents. Maybe there's something going on. And I guarantee you, you've showed up this morning and whether you acknowledge or not, you feel drained by this. Hiding it, pretending like everything is okay. Listen, God does not want that for you. He looks at you not in judgment, but he looks at you in love and compassion saying, I don't want you to live with this parasite called sin. I want to free you. Listen, what do we see in the story? In the story, we see God telling Israel to drive out these wicked nations, and the tribe of Judah seems to do very well. In verse 17, they attack the Canaanites and destroy their city. In verse 18, they take a ton of territories back for the Lord. In verse 19, uh, God is with them, so they were able to drive out the mountaineers. And I imagine the mountaineers, that's just what I think a mountaineer looks like, just like a hipster lumberjack. That's just what I imagine. Um, in verse 20, they defeat the three sons of Anak. Uh, these guys were actually giants, uh, many scholars believe, who Goliath descended from. So just huge guys. So that's a lot of hard work. To drive out these enemies, like sometimes we just read the Bible and we just skim over verses and we're like, okay, that's cool. Think about it. Think about the effort that it took to drive out these people, to fight giants. That's a ton of hard work. But God blesses them for their obedience and he's with them. God commands, Judah obeys, Simeon follows, but then we see the tribe of Benjamin down there in verse 21. They don't obey. They're commanded to drive out the Canaanite tribe, the Jebusites, but they don't obey. Benjamin does not follow God's instructions. Um, This is not Benjamin the person. This is Benjamin the tribe. So the tribe of Benjamin makes all sorts of excuses not to do it. I can just imagine their inner dialogue. You know, it's too hard. It's too difficult. That's such a big task to drive out a whole group of people to fight against them. How much better to just live with them? How much better just to make peace with them, just to coexist with them? What ends up happening? Verse 21, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites, what? Dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. To this day. 
Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, listen, we see it there in the verse at the time that they wrote this book. At the time this book of Judges was written, that the guy sitting there penning the book, possibly several hundred years later, is like, yeah, so Benjamin was supposed to drive out those Jebusites, and he didn't, and check it out, they're still here. They're still with us to this day. They stuck around. They dwelt with them. The people who worship false gods dwelling with God's people, living with them. The, the effect that this has, this is basically when, when people who don't love God dwell with the children of Israel, what happens is they lose their respect for God. They have no care for God's commands. God's given them a set of commands, but now they're living with people who are just like, forget God's commands. And so all of a sudden, they're starting to go, yeah, God's commands are pretty silly. They begin to share the customs of the people, and leading into that, they begin to share their sin. These people sacrifice their children. Benjamin starts sacrificing their children. These people bow down to idols. Benjamin starts to bow down to idols. And in the end, the result is that the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe of Israel that was called to be set apart for God's purposes, is now becoming like the Canaanites. And I see this so much in the lives of young people. People who once walked with Christ, it starts with them hanging out with the wrong crowd. And honestly, it's such a cliche. Seriously. Anytime, you know, I talk to kids and I'm like, be careful with peer pressure because, you know, your peers are pressuring you or like, hey, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. I feel like people just roll their eyes at me and they're like, I'm fine, Pastor Aaron. I can hang out with these people and I can be fine. I have seen so many people, many of you even know people who used to be in this group who they started hanging out with the wrong group of people and what happens? They're with people who say God's commands are stupid. The Bible is stupid. Next thing you know, they're saying the Bible's stupid. Next thing you know, they're saying God is ridiculous. They begin to share in the lifestyle of the people who don't follow Christ and what ends up happening. Then they begin to share in their sin. Now, I have never been a pastor who has told you guys to not spend time with non-Christians. I think that's honestly the dumbest thing I can tell you as a pastor because we are called to be a light in the darkness. We are called to go into the world and preach the gospel. Jesus had many friends who were not saved, and he always led them to him. But there's a difference between going out into the world, out into groups of friends who are non-Christians as a missionary, and going out to say, let's see what they can offer me that Christ can't. And what I see is so many people going with the wrong motives, not as a missionary, but just as someone to say, I just want to enjoy the pleasures that these people can offer me. And the next thing you know, they're sucked into a dark vortex of sin. And it ruins people's lives. Guys, the one thing that we can learn about this is that it's very important to follow God's instructions. It's very important to listen when God says something. You know, the other day I was at um, Noodles and Company. Anyone ever go to Noodles and Company? It's so good. They've got noodles, and you're sitting with people, so it's company. So there you go. Yeah, so I went to Noodles and Company with my wife, and we were sitting there, and I was right here, and she was sitting here facing me, and behind us was the most adorable old couple. Like, they were just like, the, the man looked like the guy from Up. He had like a little bow tie and glasses, and she had this like cute little hat. Like, they were just so cute. And I was looking at them, and I was overcome by the cuteness. And I was like, oh my gosh, these people are so cute. I must let my wife know. She must see them. So I was thinking like, how can, because they were like right behind us. So I was like, okay, how can I 
get her to look in a way where she doesn't draw attention. So I was like, okay, Brooklyn, there's this really cute old couple behind us. They're like adorable. You've got to see them. But uh, it's going to be really awkward if you turn around the wrong way. So um, there is a painting on the wall over there. I want you to turn and look at the painting. And then as you swivel back to look at me, just catch a glimpse of them. She didn't listen to my instructions. She was like, uh, no, 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 I just, I, I'm going to look at Chick-fil-A. So she like turns around, Chick-fil-A is behind us, and like they're over here, and she's looking over here, so she totally didn't see them. So I'm like, babe, like just look at the painting. That's the best way to do it. And she's like, no, I don't want to do that. That's weird. She's like, I'll crack my back. So she's sitting there, and let's imagine that Trevor's the old people. So she's sitting there, and she goes to crack her back. And just makes like direct eye contact with them. And they look at her and she looks at him and she's like <laughs> her back. And it was just, it was so awkward. They totally figured out that we were staring at them. And, and it just goes to show that sometimes God gives us instructions. I know I made myself God in that illustration. But what I'm trying to say is don't just ignore God's commands because he does have a reason for them. Listen, Israel fails all throughout Judges to listen to God, and honestly, they're acting just like kids. Parents can see the big picture. Parents know way more, but little kids still insist that they know better. When I was a kid, I really wanted to try the chocolate, the special chocolate mom kept in the cupboard. And that was the, you guys ever tried that chocolate? The baking chocolate? The chocolate that has no flavor, the chocolate that tastes like, like Satan's toenail, like that's just, it's, it's the worst thing you can imagine. But it's, it says chocolate, it's Hershey's, baking chocolate. I'm like, that's the chocolate that goes in the cakes you bake, so I really want that chocolate. I know it's good, mom, you're just trying to keep it from me. So I would take the chocolate, it's just, it was so bitter and so terrible. I felt like my tongue was trying to murder me. God has reasons for his instructions, Are you like that with God when God tells you, hey, I really don't want you to do that? Or like, hey, listen, if you just wait until you're married to be intimate with your boyfriend or girlfriend when they're actually your husband or wife, it's going to be so much better. And you're like, no way, God, that can't be. I need that now. When God's like, hey, stop stressing out about your future. Stop freaking out. Stop being such a control freak. Trust me with the future of your life. And you're like, yeah, God, I mean, I know you're God and everything, but I just want to do what I want to do, and I want to freak out and stress out about it. When it's any sin offered to you, you have a choice to either choose God or not. And so often we're like me, just getting into that baking chocolate, and we think it's going to be great, and it's the worst thing ever. Listen, in chapter 2, we're going to see that the tribe of Benjamin actually begins to start marrying these people, the wicked Jebusites, and this is a terrible thing. See, God had said to Benjamin, I want you to make this land holy, to be set apart for the purpose. What's the purpose? You guys know we talk about it almost every time. The whole purpose of this whole thing, entering the land, settling in Canaan, setting up shop, driving out the enemy, it's because God has a very special mission he's working on called rescue humanity. Jesus needs to be born. Israel needs a place to set up shop. My notes... (laughs) I just clicked on the wrong thing. I'm going to stall for one second until I find my place again. Man, I hate when I lose my train of thought like that. Um, Okay. What did we talk about last time we were here? Bacon cakes. Remember that? I had the whole setup, and I was like, phase one, you've got the eggs. Phase two, you put the cake in the oven. Phase three, you eat it. 
The cake in the illustration was the cake of salvation. Jesus, or God is baking something, and it's the salvation of the humanity. It's the salvation of people coming to Christ. It's the saving of the world. God is the baker in the illustration. Israel is the assistance. The project is the gospel cake, saving the world. The promised land is like the oven. Are you like, is he going to do cake analogies every week? No, don't worry. Uh, This is probably the last time. But there's a problem because you're looking at the oven. You're trying to bake a cake. There's rats in the oven. It's the Canaanites. You need to clean out the oven because there's rats living in it. So what happens? Do they clean out the oven? Do they clean out the land? They say, no, rats in the oven are fine. I can bake a cake and have rats living in the oven. It's no big deal. What would you say if you went to a baker shop and he's like, hey, just so you know, there's actually rats living in my oven, like a whole family of them. They're nesting in there. And um, so you might find some interesting little toppings on your cake, but just don't. It's totally, like, would you be like, yeah, that's fine. No, you'd be like, that's, that is terrible. <laughs> like, kill that rat. That is terrible. Listen, guys, we need to battle sin or it will grow and take over our life. You know, Wednesday nights is at my house. And one thing I can always bet on is that one of you guys is going to leave the door open, which means that all the time I get mice in my house and I have to kill them all the time. I should start charging you. We should start taking up a tithe just to pay for my mouse traps. Uh, just kidding. I would never do that. But anyway, um, so I found some mouse poops in my house and uh, I was like, dang it. But I kept trying to kill the mouse and I kept putting traps out and I would like come out and the trap would be flipped over and like the bait was gone, but there was like no mouse to be found. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So I got, I got a, an iPad with an app that it's like a security camera app. So I was like sitting in my room while I had the iPad streaming to my other iPad and my phone, I mean like in my bedroom, and I'm staring at the oven, like just waiting for something to happen, and out comes the biggest, fattest rat. And he walks in, and like there's this little marshmallow, because apparently this rat loves marshmallows. This stinking rat, I'm like watching it, and like Brooklyn's like, Brooklyn's like, do you see anything? And I'm like, nope, because I know if she knows, like she's gonna literally start screaming and jump out the window. So I'm like, just go back to bed, honey. It's going to be okay. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this rat's huge. And it walks out, and it goes up to the trap, and like, it looks at the marshmallow, and it looks at the trap, and it just is like, Pah! like, it just hits the trap, like, sends it flying across the room, and, like, grabs the marshmallow. It's like, ha, 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 and it goes back under the oven, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this thing has to die. So I tried to kill it. I tried so many things. I tried to kill this thing for two weeks. I set up a camera on a tripod and shoved it back behind the oven to like see its lair. And like there was like three traps back there that it dragged from the kitchen like into its lair as like trophies to go, stupid human, thought you could outsmart me? No way. And it was just, it was terrible. It kept, I kept watching it every night on the security camera, trying to find new ways to kill it. I, I, it, was, it was insane. I finally realized that I can't kill it. I can't kill this rat. The only way I could really kill it was rat poison, but then it just crawls into my wall and dies, and then I get a million flies in my house. So I was like, I can't kill this rat. And sometimes, guys, listen, temptation is unkillable. So if you guys are dealing with temptation in your life, it's like that rat. You're like, man, this thing seems unbeatable. And it just comes out, and, and you're like, man, I wish. Like, have you ever prayed, like, God, just take away temptation. It would just be so great if I was never tempted again. It would be so great if I never dealt with that struggle again. Listen, the problem was that I had left the rat an open door. You see, I couldn't kill it. 
Just like with temptation. Sometimes you can't kill temptation. You can't guarantee that you won't be tempted. But with the rat, I had left an open door. And a lot of times in our life, what we do is we, because we can't kill our temptation, we just stop fighting. And we leave an open door. And so it keeps coming back in our life, and it keeps having victory over it. So what I had to do was I had to come up with an alternative plan. Instead of trying to kill this rat, I was like, I've got to block it. So what I did was I pulled out the oven, and I did a bunch of things. I, I got some uh, baking soda, and I just threw it all over the walls and all the ground. Apparently, they don't like baking soda. Then I got cotton balls, and I soaked them in peppermint oil, and I just threw like a million behind the oven. And, and then I got bricks, and I built this wall to like seal in like where he was in his little dirty rat hole to keep him from being able to come. And then I got seven traps, and I just made like a layer of traps. So if he somehow made it past the brick wall, he would be faced with a wall of traps he'd have to get by. And I was like okay, I know he's a smart rat. I've literally watched him on camera outsmart my traps, but instead of trying to kill him, I'm going to put up some roadblocks. Listen, as a Christian, there are no guarantees you won't face temptation. You will face temptation. And even though you can't stop it, you can block it. If you guys are facing temptation, which if you're a normal human being is all of you, here's how you can block temptation. One, the word of God. No matter what your sin is, no matter what your struggle is, Go to God's word and fill your heart with so much scripture that when the enemy comes to you, you can be like Jesus when Satan tempted him in the wilderness and say, he just start busting out scripures. Just start busting out God's heart. Just, like, Satan hates that stuff. When you have God's word in your heart, you have truth in your heart that can overcome the lies of the enemy. If your struggle is with looking at stuff on your phone, which is a huge epidemic nowadays for guys and girls, inappropriate things, you can get filters. I, I've bought filters for the youth group that I can put on anyone's stuff, and it helps so much to close that door where it's like, okay, I'm not going to let these things come into my life. I'm going to put up a filter. If you struggle with gossiping or lying or disrespecting your parents or lust or any of these things, anger, pride, Accountability is a huge block to temptation. That means going to someone who's either a peer or someone who is on the student leadership, someone who's a counselor, and just saying, hey, listen, I really struggle with pride all the time. There's this huge thing right now in cheerleading. Like, there's this other girl who's better than me, and I really want to, like, murder her, uh, but I won't. Um, you know, I, I'm not a girl, but I'm just, you know, I'm speaking, trying to speak to you girls here. Um, you know, if you deal with pride, going to someone and saying, hey, listen, this is my struggle. This is my sin right now. Please pray for me and ask me how I'm doing. That is a huge block to temptation. The Bible says that we confess our sins to one another. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us. Listen, if you don't, sin will eventually overrun your life. It'll grow huge like this giant rat. Look at that thing. Oh, my gosh. That, that wasn't in my kitchen. I would probably move if that thing showed up in my house. Listen. I <laughs> know. That's pretty bad. Stop, stop downplaying sin is all I'm saying. Stop downplaying sin in your life. Listen, anytime there is sin in your life, God is looking at it and saying, you need to drive that out. That is no good for you. That's rats in the oven. You are called to be holy. You are set apart for a purpose, not to be perfect, but to follow wholeheartedly after the perfect one and serve his purposes, not to live a life for your story, but for God's glory, which brings greater glory into your story because then your story becomes intertwined with the greatest story of all time, which is the story of Jesus. 
But so often, what do we end up doing? We allow sin into our lives because we think, it's just a little sin. What's the big deal? I think I have a problem. I really, really enjoy ice cream. Like, there are like three Rite Aid cups in my car right now. I just, I love ice cream. It's my weakness. Chocolate chip cookie dough. It's just like a solid wall of pure vanilla with these chunks of angel tears. Um, that's, that's what I call cookie dough, angel tears. They're in there. They're, they're so good. And I was um, walking down the street from Rite Aid, and I had this cup of cookie dough, ice cream. And I'm eating it. I'm just enjoying it so much. And I think, this, I think I have a problem because these three guys started walking towards me, and they looked like straight up like just gangsters. Like they looked like they were like just up to no good. Um, you know, the one guy was walking towards me. He's looking at me, and he's going like this. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what that means, but my thought was not, this is why I have a problem. My thought, my first thought was not like, oh man, these guys are going to mess me up. I should run. My first thought was, oh no, if they hit me, I'll drop my ice cream and I can't keep eating it. That was my main issue with the problem. And you know, a lot of times, guys, we can be more concerned about losing our sin, our pleasure than the consequences of what sin can bring into our life. We're struggling with sin. Maybe you're, you're struggling with sin, and you're not thinking, man, the consequences of what this could do to my life and my family and my marriage and my friendships. You're not thinking about that. You're just thinking like, man, if I get found out, I'm going to have to stop doing this. Man, ugh, I just I don't want to lose what I love. And God looks at us, and he says, listen, when you allow sin to stay, you always have to pay. It's true because it rhymes. It's true because it rhymes. Listen, I'm going to close my portion of the teaching for today and just tell you guys he loves you so much, and you've all got issues. I've got issues. And Jesus looks at you, and he's never satisfied. Now, I've said this before. Here's what I mean. God is satisfied in you in the sense that he loves you so much and he's just like, you're my child and you're amazing and you're beautiful and I have plans for you. Like there's nothing you could ever do to approve, to gain God's approval. So when I say he's not satisfied, that's not what I mean. Here's what I mean. He's not satisfied in the way that a doctor looks at a patient with cancer and he says, I'm not satisfied until we remove every bit of that from you. That's the thing. He loves you as a person. He's satisfied in you because you're in him and Christ is in you. But he looks at your sin and he's like, man, if you would just let me reach in, if you would just let me go in and remove that, if you would just let me help you. And so that's my challenge for you guys today is if you've got walls up, stop being like me without ice cream and caring so much about your sin. Lower the walls and just say, God, come in because I need your help got this issue with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I need your help with this. I'm, I'm stressed out about school and I'm making all sorts of terrible decisions. God, come in. Fix this. I'm, I've got problems with my parents or with my siblings or my family. There's things going on in my life that are struggle and it's causing me to turn to things that are wrong, to numb the pain that I go through. And God says, let down your wall and let me in. That stuff can't help you. Let me drive it out. Let me help you.